I think I'm having an art attack. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Art Attack. Today is a extra special episode because not only do we have art historian extraordinaire Lizzie Dastin, professor of art history, but we have her mom in studio, <laughs> which has never happened before. It hasn't, but she's not here just as some exercise in exploring my past. <laughs> Please, mama, let's not do that. Aww. She's here because she is the most proficient, profound storyteller that I've ever met. And the way that we talk about art is all about the story. And I thought that she would be a great person to engage in this conversation with us today because when, whenever I hear feedback from students at the beginning of a semester, what brought you to this classroom? They say, well, you know, I had to take this as a prerequisite for something or nobody takes art as part of the general curriculum, it seems, anymore. It's this extra class. It's to make you sophisticated. It's like the golf of sports. And I just don't think that that's true. And I think that instead of seeing art as extra or as a rarefied thing that takes us out of our normal lives, we need to integrate it better with our daily lives. And my mother really did that well for me. And so I figured that you as a father who have, you have a daughter who is well-versed in art and you as a mother who helped me get to that place too, that we could have a dialogue about how to bring art into your everyday life. Did you introduce her? Do you remember the moment that you introduced your daughter to art? Because she lives and breathes art oh, and well, history. The whole point was that there wasn't one moment. I very much stayed away from those books, A Child's Introduction to Art. I mean, I'm sure they're wonderful. But it was part of her life as long as I can remember. And um, I remember with my younger daughter, Rebecca, I had been collecting favorite uh, postcards from museums from the time I was a teenager. So I have the most enchanting video of Rebecca sitting on the chaise. She is much smaller than the scrapbook. Where are you from originally? Uh, Los Angeles. Okay. Why do you have such a... Why do you speak so elo like eloquently and you feel like you're from oh, you're, your Britain? You're very yeah. sweet. No? Exactly. She has well, a Madonna-like accent. She yeah. studied in, in England. Okay. For that. We got, let's get to the bottom of that. And then we'll ask who your favorite daughter is after Aww. that. Okay. It's obviously my sister. But I did go to school for two years in England. And my mama was an actress who worked with an English professor to get rid of a Southern drawl that she had. Oh, wow. So okay. anyway, so here we have my little Rebecca sitting on the chaise um, with a scrapbook of pictures, twice as big as she is. She's maybe a year old, and we have her on video pointing to a picture and saying, Monet, and then birth, birth Morisot. And from the time she was tiny, she uh, knew her pictures. In fact, I was so proud. One day I took her to LACMA and there was a painting by Monet hanging on the wall that was not in her book. But she looked at it and said, Monet, to the astonishment. <laughs> and then as far as Lizzie, my favorite moment with her, she must have been about four or five. I had a book called Seasons from the New Yorker. And again, it was a large book with uh, images, New Yorker 
cover, New Yorker magazine covers, and all pertaining to do with the seasons. And we would go through this book page by page, and I would say, okay, what is the story here? Or what is the joke? Why do you think this has been chosen as a cover for the New Yorker magazine? And she would always find it. And so to approach paintings from that glorious view that there is a story here, something to be uncovered, and part of daily life. And again, I was um, a docent, a volunteer docent at the Getty. And I would have these groups of school children. And we would, the only thing I was interested in, what is the story, what's happening? And then I would have them get into groups. All right. One of you discussed the lighting. How does that add to the mood and the story? How does the color add to the mood and the story? And how do the expression of the people add to it? So it's all out there, all thrilling, and you could never be too young to enjoy the story of art, which, which reminds me of one last Mama, story. no. no okay. <laughs> Shelf okay. it. Okay. Okay. So <laughs> what do you think, what do you two think? I'll start with Justin. Uh, what do you two think that introducing a child to art young, how does that enhance their, their life? Well, every child, we know that every child draws. Every child likes to draw. I mean, the first thing we do is not communicate verbally. We communicate visually. We're able to make markations faster than, yeah, we can say goo goo gaga, but we're making a deeper, more profound statement of the universe and communication through drawing. I really believe that. Um, I mean, kids are telling stories that are impossible to tell. They're, they can't articulate those stories, whether it's trauma or those deep, profound, you know, cosmic, oceanic bliss tales from the before life of their, of their, you know, their womb existence. They're telling these stories that are just incredible through abstract markations. And it's important. I said that the other day during a meeting. They said, what, you know, why I'm doing this, you know, new show on art. And they said, well, why do you want to do it? And I said, is one reason. Why not? No, I'm kidding. I didn't say that. <laughs> I said, there's one reason is it's important. Art is important. Art is a deeper understanding. I always say that art is more you than you are yourself, right? So if art is more you than you are yourself, then of course it's important for kids. It's important for them to communicate their, their feelings, their language, their story. Their... But it's also just you can click into that other hemisphere where you can get lost as an exercise into the cosmos. It's a spiritual meditation. So you might not be trained in you know, how to meditate, you know, you might not be able to do that, but with drawing, I think you're able to go there. So I always had Akira draw and I'm very disappointed that she doesn't continue to draw because you hit a certain age and you get very, you either continue and you go, okay, well, this is going to be a hobby and I'm going to be a hobbyist or you become a professional. And in most cases you get turned off because at some point of the process, someone tells you you're not good or you get self-conscious because there's someone else who's better or it's hard because you're getting into interpreting reality, and then you stop. So it's important for all kids to draw. And for when I hear the stories like that, that you tell me that's a, that's a beautiful thing because most kids don't even have access. Because art, even though it's omnipresent, is still insular. So it's, that's upsetting. So when I hear stories 
about privileged little Lizzie. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Fair point. But that's why I love street art so much because it makes art a lot more democratic and you can have these experiences of trying to decode a story without the luxury of time or the privilege of money. And your introduction of art and its importance in childhood is from a making perspective, which I think is great. And I think from a viewing perspective, it's really helpful too, because if you look at a painting, let's say it's a representational painting, and you try to understand the emotions going through the figure's faces, then isn't that a psychological study of humanity? You are literally teaching yourself again and again how to see the world, how to perceive people. And I think that it's actually the most valuable skill that a child can acquire. And it's not just some frivolous class to take because you want an easy A, which is hilarious. I have heard from a lot of students, they say, <laughs> yeah. oh, well, art history is an easy A. I'm like, get on board, buddy. It's not. It's actually really thing. hard. I was teaching at USC. I was like, well, why are you taking my class? They were like, because I thought it would be an easy A. And I was like, figure drawing is not an easy A. And you're an F student, but I'm going to give you a B because I'm going <laughs> to let you pass. But, but to that point, you said it's the most important. And I want to ask you why. Why is that the most important thing for kids? For me, the most important part of life is forging connections, is understanding the people that you're with, understanding yourself. And I think that art is a very valuable vehicle toward that kind of discovery. And to me, there's nothing more important than that. And so I think art history should be required for every student. And it is not just about this precious painting that you can only see if you're able to go to Paris. It really is so much more that you can apply literally every second of your life. And it's profound on the deepest visceral level when I think I got the idea of showing the picture postcards to my girls because when I was a tiny little girl, my mama had reproductions of great art on the wall. And I was about two or three and there was one painting. I couldn't tell you growing up what it even was of, a portrait, a landscape, whatever. But it frightened me on such a basic level. I made her take it down from the room. I, I, I just couldn't bear it. It was just one of the most profound uh, things I've ever experienced. Couldn't tell you what the picture was until about 20 years later, Lizzie's daddy and I were in Montmartre. I'd never been there before. I walk up the, the stairs. There is the Sacre Coeur. And I screamed. It was a picture of the Sacre Coeur. <laughs> and just the memory of this earth. I do not know why it frightened me so much. But the power of art, it, it gets to you. It's one of the strongest forces in the world. Yeah, I had Katie Kowitz, Oscar Kokoschka, Rembrandt, and Bruegel the Elder on my walls. This explains a lot. <laughs> yeah, it does. It's, it basically, it was only dark, uh, Interesting. European, emotional, emotionally driven. I had Bruegel the Elder and Bruegel the Younger both. So it was comical, you know, and, and, and fun, but it was also very heavy. Like, I always had heavy art, and my grandfather was a letterer, but when he did his paintings, they were heavy. They were like, Brock and Rembrandt had a baby. And, <laughs> yeah. and those were the paintings, and it was kind of like frightening. Um, and my mom did a lot of like mother and child. And my mom was a painter too, a very unsuccessful uh, painter. 
Why do you say unsuccessful? What makes somebody unsuccessful? Where you can't make a living off of it. That doesn't mean spiritually unsuccessful. Spiritually, she was bankrupt. No, I'm kidding. No, I'm kidding. Uh, uh, No, she she used to, I used to go with her outside of the uh, Metropolitan Museum, and she would sell her stuff. And I was always like, why is nobody buying my mom's paintings? It was just like really weird. And she would stay up all night long, and she would paint. And that was what she would do, like from like like eight at night till five in the morning, she would paint. And I'd wake up in the morning and there'd be like a, a new painting. And they were always like mother with child, but the child would have like a severed head. <laughs> yeah, it was like really interesting kind of heavy work. And my grand, and you know, I think about that as a kid, once again, responding to the outer world. And that was kind of all around me. All, my mom was a painter. My grandfather was an artist and a painter and a sculptor. But he wasn't great. He was a great letterer. And my, he was good. He was good. He wasn't great. And then my mom was emotional, but she wasn't, you know, she wasn't great. And what courage this took for you to be the third generation having had that experience. No, but no, but I was great. So it was not courage. Oh, you just knew immediately. No, No, my mom was very encouraging, though. She was very encouraging until I got to college and she started to say, You suck. Your work is. Seriously? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Oh. Oh, my God. Really? She was really not into me drawing representation. She'd be like, what? I don't know. Like, I just would. I remember that Edith Piaf portrait I did. It was like, oh, Gloria Swanson, rather. You see that portrait I did? No. Like that kind of stuff. She was like, I don't know why you're trying to be realistic and your your emotional stuff's better. And then she started having more of an opinion. But when I was a kid, she was always very like, wow, this is really great. And she was really because she was coming from an honest place. Interesting. Well, to to circle back to your question, which I think is the, the foundational purpose of this episode is why study art? What does it do for you? And especially what does it do if you instill this habit early? I'm going to share something from my childhood that is super name droppy, so I'm sorry about that. But you know that my grandfather was a writer. And I went on the uh, – and that, my grandfather is my, my mother's father, so this side of the family – And I went on the Rosie O'Donnell show. I was in the audience. I was so happy to be there. And we went backstage after the show and met Rosie. And my mom said, oh, you know, my my father is such a fan of yours. And she said, oh, my God, I've read all of his books. And he really made me start reading so that I could read his stuff. And I think that applying that to art, art makes us, it encourages us to see And to me, it activates that sense in such a visceral, wonderful way. And it, it's just really cool to be a part of that. And, you know, for you to have art as maybe a healing tactic or a way of self-discovery for you when you were young, getting out your ideas about yourself and the world on paper, what a gift. I think it's important for anybody and and everybody. And I, I think it also, you know, how is it important? I didn't really, I wasn't a his, history guy. I never, I read a couple of books, maybe Barbara Tuckman's Guns of August and, you know, Guns, Germs, and Steel, and th- th- those ones that everybody read. But I never was a history reader. Like my mom just reads books after books, just on random weird history. But I learned a lot of history through art. And I feel like I learned a lot of psychology through art. And I learned a lot about through of science and physics through art. So I learned everything. 
Because I'm a learner of visual. And I, if I get into something, then all of a sudden that brings me into the story, into the history and the context. And art is always a representation of the history around you, which Lizzie always talks about so eloquently all the time, which is why it's great. Uh, you know, I always thought art history was phenomenal. Being an artist, just being in my art history classes was one of my favorite things to do. So let's wrap up with some hacks for people who either want to introduce art into their own lives or they want to be the conduit for somebody younger in their family. What do they do? How do they start? I suggest they listen to Art Attack. <laughs> there you go. Oh, Don't that's be an great. idiot, you morons. Listen to Art Attack. <laughs> I say change your mindset. If you think about art as something that takes you out of your life, then you're never going to get the point. And so if art is a part of it, a, a part of every experience that you have. If art is a way of understanding history, if art is a way of being prescient and forward thinking into the future, whatever it is, just see it as living, organic, vibrant, and not as something made by a lot of dead guys that has nothing to do with you. Another thought is to find one artist that you like or one type of art and then dive deep into that. See all that that painter has created, all the group, and then learn and then take it from there because art history can be a little daunting seen as one big old subject. Yeah, there are a lot of years there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think also uh, just really understand how important it is and expose yourself and your family to it because <clears throat> it is a little bit of a classist thing and that's where st- that's where you talk about street art being more democratic yep but when you go to a museum you know i went to the picasso museum in in, in montreal i'm sorry to the museum in montreal and, and i saw the picasso show and i felt like uh it was really expensive that's what that's what i noticed i was like shocked at how much it was and you know i had to pay to check my bag and I had to pay and I looked at the line it was a lot of white people you know it was just very there was nobody broke at this museum you know so like I just feel like it's important you don't need to go to the museums you can if if you can afford it or if you have access to it it's important to go or save up and splurge but I think it's really important to expose yourself to it and now we have the internet and so stop you know don't waste your time with all this you know, frivolous extra meme stuff. Like, look at a painting. A painting, there's a reason that the expression a picture is a thousand words, right? There's, a, there's a, people get caught up in memes and Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and this and that. But I think it's really important to like just look at a painting and don't not look. Like, actually spend time experiencing it. Once upon a time, back in the days when Jericho was, you know, unveiling the raft of the Medusa or Delacroix was unveiling Liberty Leading the People or whoever, it was a fucking movie experience spectacular. Now people go to the museum, oh, okay, there and there and there. And then they always go, yeah, we did it. Well, what do you mean? Oh, yeah, I did the Louvre. Well, you mean you did it? Like, I'm done. Like, I did it. I looked, I kind of walked through. But but to to walk through... And to check it off the bucket list is one thing, but to actually sit there, like you said, and experience one artist, deep dive, I think a, another iteration of that is spend some time looking at a painting, analyzing it in a deeper way till it becomes a part of your DNA. Then you're going to have a different experience with it. I do that because I have to live with my paintings that I create. Sometimes I hate it. 
And sometimes I love it, you know, and sometimes both. I go through a roller coaster of emotion during a, the creation of a process of a painting. But if you can do that, which very few people ever do, myself included, sometimes I have to be like, come on, just fucking stick it right here. Just stick it. And sometimes I can't help it because I'm like, whoa. I just went to go see, like, I saw this new Rodan I never saw before. And I was just like, God damn, like how big are these hands? And look at how beautiful they were sculpted and the expression of the face. I never had seen that one before. It was multiple figures. And I got stuck on it. I got stuck on it, which is good because it allowed me to take it in. But then there's other stuff that's like, you know, it's so funny. how We can just walk past important stuff because it's... It, it's subjective. Know, it is, of course. But it's important to to look at one. And you always tell me that, like, when you saw, you know, this painting, you wept or whatever bullshit you were talking about. <laughs> I right? really oh. did. No, I know. It you, was did. Absolutely. you did. Absolutely. Botticelli's but Birth of Venus. But I can yeah, attest to it. Uh, yeah, she was there when I wept. But, but, you st but when you saw that, how long did you stare at it? Oh, a long time. Maybe 15 minutes, 20 minutes. And when I see people doing that, I love that. Lizzie showed me a video uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, just kidding. Leonardo da Vinci's new painting that was discovered, Jesus holding the globe. Oh, she was the one who sent that video so Remember that I would that? show it to you. Uh, yes, yes, of and, course. And the video is from the, what's the painting called? It's, what's the painting? Wasn't it a Rembrandt? And it was the, what are, no, what are they called? No, it's da Vinci. It's da Vinci, the new Jesus holding the globe. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the perspective was the camera was from the painting perspective and it was people staring into the, the painting wow. and it caught people's reactions. And some people are in awe. Some people are like, eh, some people are like crying and weeping, but just the fact that one painting, look at those reactions of hundreds of people. It goes to show you that it's important. It does. And that reminds me historically of an exhibition in America. It was in the, the mid 19th century. And that's when landscape paintings were really popular. And so people like Thomas Cole, Frederick Church, they would do these gigantic landscapes of the American setting, but also of settings that were in other countries. And so what's cool about that is that a lot of people, you mentioned the elitism of art, and I think that's extended to travel too. So a lot of people didn't have access to travel. And so by viewing these landscapes, they were able to transport themselves to a different place in the world that otherwise they would have no idea what it looked like. Because at this point, photography hasn't been invented. And so the only way to see something is to see it in the flesh or to see it on a painting. And some of the reactions, they're very gendered. And we have to take this criticism with a grain of salt. But apparently women fainted <laughs> when they saw this one, uh, this one Hudson River School landscape painting by Church that is now at the Met. But again, that goes to show the visceral reactions that people have to art. And you're only going to have that reaction if you actually sit and look. And I gave myself that opportunity recently. I've always hated Rothko. I hate admitting this to you because I'm sure you No, will, I, I agree with you. I hate yeah, Rothko Yeah, that you too. will use this against me. <laughs> <laughs> so, Although I won the Rothko Scholarship for the Most Outstanding Artist in the Five Boroughs of New York City. Wow. Which was the first scholarship I ever won, which is Mark Rothko. I love Rothko. So did you give it back because you uh, didn't of approve of the Abstract Expressionist? <laughs> yeah, so I never liked Rothko. And then I went to the Rothko Chapel in Houston and I was with a couple friends and they were off doing their own thing. So I thought, all right, I may as well just sit and observe and absorb. And it was transfixing. 
sitting, watching how the light dances across the surface and how the texture reveals itself in different ways at different moments was just luminous. And I only have that experience of Rothko because I gave myself permission to sit and to look. And that's why you could see why an artist like Andrew Wyeth could look at a barn wall and all of the splatters and the nooks and crannies and the crevices and the cracks on it and paint light on that wall and that's all we need to look at. And what he's what we're looking at with an Andrew Wyeth is like, wow, what a beautiful, tangible, textured surface. It just feels like emotional almost. And then what he looked at it when it wasn't even that was like, wow, I'm inspired by this barn wall, right? Just like you were inspired by a crappy Rothko. <laughs> you know, that's the same thing. So, so you know, inspiration is really everywhere. And I think circling full circle, wrapping this up, is that art is really important. And what a great job you did raising a wonderful child who has become an insanely articulate person. I was talking about Lizzie in my meeting yesterday, and I said, man, you got to hear our podcast. Well, what are you know what are your topics? I don't remember the topics, but you got it. But Lizzie, man, I'm telling you, like she's so smart and she's so articulate. And very rarely do you meet someone who doesn't say doesn't have words like fillers, like um, uh. I listen back to my podcast and I go, I don't know. I say, uh huh, or really, or you guys out there know what I say, so don't don't write to me about it. <laughs> but the point is that like a lot of a lot of people have fillers and they don't know, you know, like, and people use words out of context or, or wrong use of words like myself and Manny. We use r words all the time that are incorrect, uh, especially me. Uh, and, but some people don't, and some people know the language extra well and are able to articulate. So you did a good job. Thank but you. even though she's, she's your second miraculous. favorite. Even I am the second favorite. That's fine. I pick my sister over me too. And that's very generous. Thank you. And I want to end with, by asking the two of you, which painting or which work of art do you think that our listeners should look at? If you could just pick one to really spark their inquiry. Um, Vato's, is it Leaving Cythera? The, leaving the Island? Yes. yes. Yes, I would say that. It is so evocative, so tragic, so beautiful, and will put you in a very special mood for the rest of the day. I don't even know what that painting is. I have to look that up. You know Vateau, though, right? Uh, maybe. V-A-T-O? V-A-T-T-E-A-U. Oh, sorry. W-A-T-T-E-A-U. Watteau. The, the British painter. He's actually French, so it's it's Oh, Watteau, Watteau. Okay, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I know Watteau. But the, the, you're, you're, the, you're, the way you pronounce things is like, I feel like you're from another country. <laughs> so. Or another planet. I'm like, what is Vato? I was like, Vato. Watteau. I well, that is the correct pronunciation. Okay. Yeah, Watteau painted around the same time as Reynolds. Yeah. Yeah, he was a, a, a very starving French artist who did very few paintings. Most of his work was painting um, signs for taverns because he would get free drinks in exchange <laughs> for the painting. And he's, he painted um, theatrical people. And th there's just a, there's a haunting beauty to his work, which is unlike the candy boxy um, Rococo people uh, that he uh, painted with. I so would say my, I mean, 
my choices are endless, but I would say uh, Caravaggio's Bacchus, only because I just looked at it again recently. Bacchus Mulata. Have you seen that one? I have. Ooh, God. Oh, but in that genre, a second one would be Saturn devouring his children. Oh, by yeah. oh yeah, that's Francis. my dad's, yeah. dad's favorite. Yeah. favorite. I don't know why. Every, every time I see that painting, two <laughs> things strike me. Saturn devouring his children by Francisco de Goya is a phenomenal painting because it's so painterly, it's so grotesque, and it's so powerful. And when you see it, it's small. Yes, yes. And it feels, once again, like the Mona Lisa, it's big. It has a bigness to it. Which always makes me feel like, wow, how significant is this? That like a painting who is literally small, physically, has a spiritual impact of a, a weightiness that just feels heavy in an emotional sense as well as a spiritual sense. And so Goya's Saturn devouring his children, I put that as the top 10 paintings of all time. Which is weird because I feel like he just did that like as a side. Like he was, you know, he just finished this big court painting. And then he was like, I'm going to paint something real cool. You know what I mean? And then he did this mythological piece. But that came from a place of authenticity that maybe you could argue the other commissioned works didn't because he's painting it for his own design. I don't know if he was. Was he? Like, that's a really interesting question. I feel like we got to do a podcast just on Saturn devouring his children because it's <laughs> such a, I mean, Goya. We'll have my father on that one. Goya was like, he ran the spectrum from political work to court paintings to stuff like this. I mean, I think he was probably also one of the most special painters, but thank you for coming on the show. Oh, wait, I didn't get to answer mine. I need to hear her <laughs> no, you're not. I yeah. think Felix Gonzalez Torres, any of his installations that he does with Candy, Untitled oh, Portrait dear. of Ross. Oh. And what I love about that and what I love about contemporary art when it's done well is that it encourages the viewer to ask questions. It doesn't seal up any kind of answer in a neat box. And so I think that something that seems not artistic at all because the work is just a collection of pre-wrapped everyday candies and it's stacked in a corner. Anybody can install one. And the message is so much more poignant than that. So Felix Gonzalez Torres, his partner, uh, Ross, just died from complications from AIDS. And the weight of the candy pile equals the weight that Ross was when he died. And so the poignancy here is that viewers are encouraged to take a piece of candy with them. And so as they do that, that's also a metaphysical reminder that the body eventually becomes nothing. It doesn't have a weight. It doesn't occupy mass. And the saddest part about that to me is that every morning that candy pile is restocked. It regenerates as Ross does not. And I think that work is where I would start because it's hard. It's hard and it's fun and it's participatory. Mm. Okay, guys. Thank you. 